0: You're listening to the Man of Class podcast. I'm your host, Eric Yusko, founder of Man of Class, this podcast, and is the exceptional life strategist, helping those men become the man they've always wanted to become. This episode, we've got the trio back, Chad Sutton, David Zapata, topic, infinite banking. This is part two. If you haven't seen part one, go back and watch a previous episode. There we cover a lot of what's the overall topic, what what does that really mean? Some of the strategies, some of the sort of macro type stuff. Today, we're going to get all into the micro. Today is going to be a lot of Q&A. So Dave is going to help us walk through some of these tangible questions that a lot of people have had. And so if that's right up your alley, then stay tuned because this episode is going to give you a lot of those tactical approaches. <music> Every day, the world tolerates less and less of traditional masculine behavior, which has driven a new standard for men to be successful. How does one evolve so that they can win in today's world? Enter Man of Class, a place to empower men to break down traditional masculinity and build the necessary skill sets, mindset, and confidence to become the men that society desperately needs. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy. All right. Welcome back, guys. Another episode. We're here again. This is part two. So we've got Chad Sutton with us and David Zapata. We are talking about IBC, Infinite Banking, uh, part two. So last week, if you tuned in with us, what we were talking about was sort of like the macro scale. What is IBC? Again, some of the understandings about money. This whole season has been dedicated around investing in yourself and your wealth journey We're putting this together sort of as a mark in time. So, whether this stuff resonates with you now, great. If it doesn't resonate with you for another five to 10 years, don't worry this will still be here for you to go back to as you develop and save up money and figure out where you want to go. So thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you here. We really appreciate the questions that you've been sending us. Uh, It's been helping to steer some of our conversations as we go through. So with that, welcome Chad and David, and let's just jump right into it. I think Chad had some questions, so I'll, I'll, I'll let Chad start hitting David with some questions. Let's Perfect. do it.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for having me on the show yet again, Eric. Um, so I think what we'll do, like you mentioned, you know, I, I'm relatively well read on this subject, but I am not well implemented. Right. So this will be a great opportunity for, for me to ask some questions that I know people are going to have. And for, mm-hmm. you know, David to, to kind of help us understand what the right path and or, you know, how this turns out practically to, to, to uh, resemble. So first question. You know, we're talking about infinite banking concept here, IBC, right? Mm-hmm. So there are three types of people in this world who, who buy insurance. The first one is looking for IBC. They're looking for a, a way to build their own bank. That is one strategy. Another is looking for some of these indexed types that give higher returns. They're looking at it as an investment vehicle, you know, like just, just like putting money in your 401k. And then the third is someone who buys insurance for, you know, God forbid that they pass away and and the life, the the death benefit, right? So we're obviously talking about the person who's trying to build these as, you know, cash value policies, maximizing that component so that. Uh, they can use it to build their own bank. So, David, uh, where I'm going with the question is there are a couple of parameters when you're setting these up and, and not all policies are created equal. I can't say that enough, right? When you're setting these up and if I'm going towards the IBC concept, what is kind of the generic path or the generic um, terms that one might need to know in terms of how their, their representative should be setting these up? Ooh. What do they want to maximize? What do they want to minimize? Things like that. Yeah. That, uh,
2: I love that question because uh, if I flip it, just to explain uh, how to approach it initially, you know, when the question is, how does the person go about investing in real estate? The first thing that comes to mind is nuance. What is the client want? What are their goals? What is their current position? Mm-hmm. And the same is true for IBC. So it's always a nuance um, question. And I would advise everybody listening to this to really understand what it is that they want, where they want to go and where they are. So the path that's created in front of them connects those three points or those two points, the, the beginning and end. So that would be very, very important working with somebody that can show you a path that connects those two things for yourself. Uh, but in general, I love what you said. Uh, I think the principle, uh, at a macro level that we should clarify here is that mr nelson talks about this as well the the difference between buying life insurance for protection which is actually the original intended reason why mutual companies initiated two years ago people wanted to protect among a group among themselves they wanted to protect themselves against premature death. So it's a free market solution to protecting a community. We all chime in, and if somebody passes, we'll protect that family from the income that was lost from the breadwinner. It's a beautiful thing. You're not taking anything from anyone. We're just getting together, collaborating, and building upon that community, okay? That's right. Yeah. So that is, is one approach, the protection. The next step that we take with IBC is to identify that It's not just the fact that it's a protection vehicle, but it's a vehicle for financing. As a matter of fact, Mr. Nelson is very emphatic to say that your need for financing through your life is much greater than you need for protection. And if you use these policies for financing, you'll end up with more death benefit than you would have ended up if you bought initially for protection, because you'll continue to grow the system as your financial needs get larger and larger in a way accomplishing both, protecting your family, creating generational wealth, transfer tax-free, at the same time you use the money today. And that is such a different paradigm with many investing vehicles today. Many investing vehicles today are accumulating, accumulating, accumulating for the future. And when I wanna retire, when I wanna travel, when I wanna enjoy my life in the future, I'm going to deplete that to zero and hopefully I die before that hits zero, (laughs) right? Yeah, not, not many of us think about this, but which, we need.
0: Which is, a, which is a, probably the number one or number two fear that the baby boomer generation has right now. And so I, I, I always look at the future and say, how is it that I can take what happened, you know, future generations or I guess past generations, but people mm-hmm. that are older than me, how can I take what are the things that they are fearful of and how do I pivot my life so that we don't end up repeating the same thing and go talk to the baby boomers? They, it's either they are, they're struggling to pay for health insurance. They're struggling to have enough money to be able to retire. Or if they Mm -hmm. do retire, they finally have gotten that, you know, golden egg, right? They're like, I've got, you know, a million dollars, $2 million, whatever it is. Now I just pray that a stock market crash doesn't come. I pray that my money doesn't run out. I pray that basically I die before my money runs out because I don't want to go get a a part-time job or a job when I'm 95 years old. S- yeah, simple simple analogy.
1: Here goes Chad Sutton, simple analogy. Once again, are you building a silo full of water or are you building a river, right? The river flows no matter what it keeps, it keeps growing. And when it rains, it gets bigger, but the silo eventually runs out, no matter how big, you, how
2: big you build it. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I don't know you guys, but I am working really hard on longevity and being healthy and having a long life with my wife. So I am trying to observe that example and go on a direction that suits more my interests. I want to be able to enjoy my life as much as I get because I only know there's only one. And I need to lay out my financial life in accordance to that. So going back to the specific question, if you don't mind, um, these policies are designed whole life to uh, be part of your entire life and at the end of your life, They'll offer that that benefit protection, as I said, but throughout their life, from the IBC perspective, we're going to use them as the foundation of the house, of our financial home. So we want to make sure that it's a foundation that is reliable, that is safe, that doesn't expose us to to risk, because then we can obviously buy uh, or build more uh, sophistication returns. You know, you can do whatever you want on top of it. So this is not criticism using IBC is not criticism to any investment strategy, to any approach. If you're sophisticated in the stock market, and you like to get exposure to equities and hedge your position with options, by all means, but why not put that on the foundation of safety first? Right? So that's the idea. When we engage in this process with a client, normally we want to understand where they are, right? What is your income? What type of assets do you have? What's your interest? in uh, starting to accumulate savings and putting them in a warehouse that is your foundation uh, for your financial life. So that's where the conversation normally starts. And then we need to understand in terms of how we design this vehicle, because not every whole life insurance policy is the same, just like real estate is nuanced by city, neighborhood, street level on one side or the other of the tracks. The same is true for insurance policies. Um, I'm not just talking conceptually, I'm talking about the fact that I've had multiple types of policies and now that my understanding has changed, I know when I was working on protection, when when now I'm working on building a system for my financial management. So uh, understanding where the client wants to go is also really important because, for example, we can assess uh, their needs for liquidity in the short term. Right. So if a client um, has a significant amount of assets and they're getting ready in the next three years with their company to buy a large plot of land for development, or they're going to um, buy equipment and they need larger liquidity, the policy needs to be sized and be designed internally in accordance with those needs of liquidity. Uh, More commonly... Um, and that's how I started. I just wanted a vehicle where I could start putting my savings in the long term to make sure that I protect the capital and the compounding of that capital over time. So I didn't have necessarily any needs for liquidity initially. So I designed the components to have enough protection, uh, which is purchased, uh, with a portion of the policy, it's called base. Uh, to have protection if my wife were to experience my loss, she would have uh, obviously a way to replace my financial value to the family. But most of it is uh, in the accumulation and the overfunding of this this policy. So immediately it shows us cash values, which is um, think about it, the current equity, you have access to the policy as an asset and you can borrow against. So I wanted to maximize the ability of having these cash values as soon as my first premium was paid so I could start engaging in the process of banking with this platform, financing things. It can start very small. Um, The way we started, for example, I had a couple of things in mind. I wanted to get married, so I wanted to finance the engagement ring, which was one of the things we did. I bought a triathlon bike. These are silly examples, I know it sounds like, but it's not silly. It's, it's, It's just understanding the principle that if I would have paid for this thing's credit or cash, it wouldn't matter. I would still be financing it. And I would be either giving up interest if I use a credit card or losing the opportunity or interest in the future if I paid cash. Instead, I took a third alternative and I acquired insurance policies, protecting myself and my wife. And with those cash values while protecting the growth of my cash now forever, I borrow money to finance those things in a loan configuration that I control. I control the terms, the length, the repayment schedule. Now I'm in control of this little pocket, this pool of money that finance my bike, my engagement ring. right? Another thing that's very common taxes. We almost pay taxes, you know, yearly or quarterly. So how do you finance that? Would it be interesting to put it through your assets and then take that capital and give it to the IRS instead of just continuing to send that money to the IRS and never capitalize on it again. Mm -hmm. So the concept is infinite banking concept. And the, the the word that I always put emphasis is an infinite because it's fascinating to me that regardless of the fact that we're dealing with a similar mindset process and product, the expression of this is infinite is, is unique to you. Some of you uh, may be interested in real estate, home development, so I've gone for a while, any questions there? Yeah, just one, one thing I
1: wanted to touch on there that yeah. you know, we've had some episodes about assets and liabilities, right? And we, we've mm-hmm. pounded and pounded and pounded that wealthy people buy assets before they buy liabilities. So, I mean, everyone needs some liabilities in their life. You need a car, you know, things like that. And, and we also talked about, unless you're someone like Eric Yusko who puts old cars back together that are worth more than they were when he bought it, right? Your car is is probably going to be a depreciated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tractor and tractors too. (laughs) So unless you're someone like that, your, your car, you know, is, is a liability, right? Well, I think uh, Robert Kiyosaki told a great story about this. His wife bought real estate and that real estate now pays the car He used car payment on the car. I guarantee he didn't finance that car. But the point is, you know, that that's what you would do. You would buy something that's making cash or cash flow, and then use that to buy a triathlon bike or whatever else that is. But now you still have the asset that's growing and you keep that cycle and, and things keep growing. So drawing that parallel, If you think about like people hear the word insurance policy and it blows their mind, right? Think of it as an asset. It it is policies like this are assets because, and there, you know, there are, as David was saying, there are ways you can trade the cash value for, for the, the life or the, the death payout and things like that. So how you structure it might affect dollar for dollar what it's worth. But when it has cash value, it is an asset. And I think this is really the next question we can get into, David, to, to where, like, let's, let's just really talk through the nuts and bolts of how am I going to use this as a banking concept? Because you think about an asset, okay, it's it's got cash value, but it also is spitting off cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. It's not quite in that, it, it doesn't quite work that way, but it's very similar. So, can you kind of walk us through, okay, we got some cash value, we put Fifty grand, or twenty-five grand, or five grand, whatever it is, into into a policy, and now we're you know a, a few months into it, and we're ready to buy an engagement ring or whatever it is. Like, h- how do those mechanics work? Mm-hmm. You know, and what happens to your money versus whose money are you using? Let, let's talk through like
0: how does that work? Would it yeah? Would it be easier to maybe go through the example, David? You know, like you were saying about the yeah yeah. I'll, like I'll talk about my ring. example. Let's do it. Just Absolutely. say here's, here's what, you know, here was my end game, you know um, we can stick with the bike. So that way, you know, if it's spent a K 2k, 5k, 10k for a bike. Yeah. How did that really play out? And how, how did you plan it so that people can start? Cause we, we always learn, at least me, learn best from an example, right? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. 1K, I can start piecing all this stuff together.
1: And four and figures is thing. relatable, right? We can talk about buying real estate
2: with it, but people's eyes make yeah. plays over, it, you know? <laughs> this, this has nothing to do with the size of it, you know? There's people that can, you sure. know, dump a hundred thousand, a million dollars into these things, you know? And there's people that start with a $5,000 policy. So, mm-hmm. that that's definitely not the point. The point is that you control a pool of money and eventually grow it to the financial needs that you have in the future. But you have to start somewhere, like with anything else. And before we jump in this, it's interesting the comment you made. I I wonder when you say, when people hear whole life, their minds explode. And I wonder why. Where where is that reaction coming from? What's the history through the asset class, through the financial industry that takes them there? And I I can tell you that maybe 2% of the people would know the answer to that. And I'll leave it at that.
0: It, it's. It, I think it goes back to everything that we live. There's a reason why financial system says just save all your money, save it in cash, regardless of what inflation has, put it in a savings account, put it in CDs, right? Those were big things. Mm-hmm. Insurance policies were not necessarily something that looked at it that way. They were looked at through a different lens. Right. Much the same way that we look at cars now, people are starting to look at cars as a liability for the longest time they thought they were assets. Now people are to looking at them as liabilities when in reality it takes another level of understanding, which is that same car could be an asset or a liability. It depends on how you use it. Right. And so I think that exact point, you know, David, with the whole term life insurance policy, it explodes many people's minds because in their brain, it's like, oh, no, uh, it's, you know, example that we just went over last time. We got into a policy. It was not optimized for us. It was said, "Here's, you know, you want to go do this. This is a great thing," but you could never really capitalize because it was something way futuristic out. It didn't really help you retire, right? There were, people didn't see the value in it. They just saw it as a this. This can help you if you kick the bucket.
1: I think it's the Uh, word insurance that really kills everybody. Right. I mean, the the term policy. Right. It really is a liability. Right. You don't you don't see the money while you're alive. You pay into it, pay into it, pay into it in pure premium. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Same thing with car insurance. Car insurance is protection from loss. It is okay. I've got this fancy vehicle. I pay money into it. And, you know, good Lord, God forbid I use it because my premium will go up, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. But I think it, it, it probably, I don't know if it's the term whole life insurance or if it's the term insurance that really makes, that just turns people's brains away from it being an asset, you know?
2: Yeah, and I tend not to answer this question. I use it more of like, you know, obviously my objective is always to make people think, but I just would ask people, who controls the narrative that is in your mind? why would you see insurance as a liability or as an expense? And, and where did that come from? Because I can tell you that our great-grandparents in the United States of the Great Depression use high cash value dividend paying whole life insurance policies as a savings vehicle in the 20s. So where did that narrative break and why are we doing something different? So besides the point, but it's fascinating to me to to see that um, some of these ideas are really strongly held in people's minds without understanding where they come from or why. So. I think asking these type of questions um, is a good introspection exercise. So let's talk about an example. So uh, think about the whole life insurance policy as a savings vehicle. Uh, I wouldn't call it an investment it's a savings vehicle where I warehouse my wealth and it has a capitalization process. So for a period of time at the beginning of this policy is going to take time to accumulate cash values that equal the outlay you have into the policy. Because at the beginning of the policy, the policy has administrative costs, commissions for agents, uh, all kinds of things associated to building this vehicle that eventually becomes more and more and more effective. So when I was talking about cash values, I like to help people uh, think about an analogy so they understand and track what the terminology means. So um, I, I usually do it with the information that people on the opposite side of the aisle, when they talk about whole life being a bad investment use, they say, well, when you buy a whole life policy, they cheat you out of your money because if you die, they give you a death benefit, but they don't give you a cash value. So why would you, why would you do that? And I use the analogy of the person that has been paying a mortgage for 30 years and goes to the bank and makes that final mortgage payment and the banker at the teller says, okay, here, Mr. Uh, Yusko, here is the title of your home. And you're going to look at the person like, well, hold on, my CPA said that I had equity in the house, so I also want my equity, right? You would never do that. Right. Because it, it, the, the misconception with cash values and death benefits is similar to this relationship where cash value is the current value that you're tracking. And there's a technical definition, doesn't matter right now, is that the current uh, equity that you have liquidity access to by borrowing against it, okay? So that number over the a period of lifetime of the policy is going to grow to match the death benefit. So every year you have this thing is getting more and more efficient. Think about an airplane burning fuel and being able to fly more and more efficiently towards its destination. At, at the end, These two things match, the death benefit and the cash value, and the insurance company has no risk. So we all, as a community, getting these policies are engaging in a vehicle that becomes more efficient with time. But at the beginning, there's a capitalization process. So if you design this policy to have... 60% 60% of the design contributing towards the accumulation of cash value initially and overfunding the policy, and 40% towards buying uh, that ability to have that, that benefit. If you start with a, let's say, $5,000 uh, uh, $5, uh, policy, okay, in year one, you're buying this from a mutual company, a portion of the money initially. The 40% would be 2000 goes to buy your death benefit, whatever that is for your age, your gender, your qualifications through the underwriting process. A lot of this is associated to your health, for example, so um, these qualifications then uh, determine how much insurability uh, you're able to have and the maximum level of insurability is also determined by your current income, so that will be the top limit that you have access to buying some of these policies based on your income. And then uh, the other 60% of $3,000 then would go towards the cash value. So when you pay your premiums, premiums have flexibility. You can pay them monthly and quarterly, annually. I tend to do mine annually because I want to have access to money immediately. And I also want the money to start compounding as early as possible. There's also an administrative cost of making more payments. So I think the way to do it most cost effective is to pay annually but people need different flexibility depending on their assets and their income. So there's flexibility through those payments. So when I um, pay my premium $5,000, uh, the policy gets enforced and then I'm going to have access to cash values. So in those cash values, usually at the beginning for the first few years will be correlated to that portion of it that is dedicated to finance. So I will have access to roughly $2,800, $3,000 that I can borrow at a given interest rate. Currently it's for me 4.75 or so. And the idea is that I'm borrowing this money from the insurance company, collateralized to my cash values to buy my $2,800 bicycle. Okay. And now I own the bicycle. I have a liability with the insurance company that I need to repay. And then I have my assets. So my assets are growing in two ways. And it's the reason why I do the whole thing. I have a guaranteed schedule of interest that the policy is going to grow year after year, contractually based on the insurance contract, okay? On top of that, what is the insurance company doing with premiums every year? They pool premiums and they're going to behave like a bank because they understand how money works. They're going to issue a $200 million loan to build a stadium in the city. They're going to buy a portfolio of treasuries, exactly portfolio of treasuries and a portfolio of bonds. They're going to make a small portion of uh, policy loans to policy holders. They're going to deploy this money, right? And they're going to give loans money. to me
1: for apartment complexes. I mean,
2: they, they lend it everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. The insurance companies are a significant source of liquidity for banking corporations around the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're going to create a portfolio to generate money with this money. And what else they're going to do with those profits, they're also going to cover administrative costs. They're gonna pay the death benefits of the year, that year, the people that pass away, right? And after that, the balance is going to have either a surplus or a loss. The years that there's a surplus, that surplus, because insurance companies are conservative, they're gonna keep some reserves for the future years. You know, the mentality is completely different. A corporation is trying to maximize profits to shareholders. These guys are trying to protect because they're thinking about the the generational death benefit they have to pay our children 50 years from now. So this is a whole different mentality. And then that dividend surplus after that is what gets distributed as dividends to policyholders. So we're earning interest and we're earning surplus uh, when the company is profitable. Over the last 150 years, the insurance company I use have paid uh, dividends year after year, including 2008, okay? So my money's gonna be growing at a given rate, every year compounding nonstop and I'm going to be borrowing this money on a loan that I control to uh, acquire this bike. So the idea is that my money is protected in compounding year after year at a faster rate that I'm borrowing this money to cover my expense. And that difference is what allows me to capture interest that I perhaps would have paid by paying the bike on credit or just by giving my cash and never earning Growth in that cash. So, so let me see I'm, if I understand this with you before mm-hmm. you get past that because this
1: part is critical. So if I if I'm walking through through two examples mm-hmm. side by side, right? Yeah. One is the typical way. So I'm going to go buy this this ring, right, or this bicycle. Yep. And so I've got five thousand dollars in my savings, or let's say I have fifty thousand in my savings account, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take five thousand out. Now I have 45, right? Then remember the bank's giving me like, what, 0.1% interest. So we'll call it zero, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I take out five now I have 45. Okay, let's put that to the side. Now I go pay cash for this thing and now I have a ring, right? Well, what I'm left with is 45,000. You know, the other example is maybe I want to keep my, my 50,000. So I go get a loan from a bank at 4.75, like you said, and now I'm paying monthly payments to a bank on a, uh, a, a $5,000 transaction, right? So, so in example two, I have monthly payments from a lender and I still have my 50000 but that 50000 is growing at essentially zero, right? So, which means if you want to lay inflation in there, you're technically losing money, but we'll leave that to the side, right? Yep. But now, if I have a policy that is worth $50,000, right, for all, for all things being equal, if I have a policy that's worth fifty thousand, and I say, okay, well, I'm not going to use cash, you know, and I'm not going to use um, a lender, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a loan from my policy, right? So now I'm gonna have that same loan at, you know, I'm gonna take out five thousand. I'm still gonna be paying four point seven five percent to the insurance carrier instead of the bank. Five, mm-hmm. but call it five, right? Mm-hmm. But the difference is. Now I neither lost cash nor did I, uh, well, I still have my cash value. And further, the reason this is better is that cash value is growing at, what, 5% per year or something. So, it's basically like having a savings account where you're getting actual decent returns and effectively your net is zero because you are, you know, on that same dollar, you're paying 5% interest and you're making five, I'm just for round numbers, you're making 5% interest. Or six. Or 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 six. So, so so worst case, you probably are netting, like you basically bought this thing for free once you pay the insurance company back or, or ideally you actually made money on the purchase because you're making more money with the insurance company than you are losing all the purchase. Is that the right way to look at it?
2: I mean, A couple I caveats to this. Okay. So uh, a couple of things that people will point out that are fair at the beginning of a policy during the capitalization process to have the $50,000 in cash value, you're going to have to put more than 50,000. So not all things are equal, but if you're talking about a mature policy that has gone through the capitalization process and it has $50,000, that example okay. will be equivalent. So okay. there's, there's a cost associated at the beginning of it. At the beginning. Okay. Second okay. thing I would point out is uh, the difference between f- earning 5% at a CD and earning 5% inside the cash values of a life insurance policy, resides also in the fact that the growth inside the policy is accessed uh, in a loan that you control tax-free, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And unintroduction. You don't have to pay capital gains tax
1: on it is your point, right? If I, I have that same, yeah, or income taxes. It's not income, it's not an investment.
2: Okay. As soon as you liquidate a CD, you don't have 5% back. You have to pay your partners at the IRS first gotcha. before you can access your capital. Gotcha. And these are small things I'm pointing out, but also keep in mind that these are small things at the beginning, but yeah. we're dealing with the growth of an exponential curve. If you grow four points or 5% uninterruptedly through the years mm-hmm. on capital on the 50,000 at the beginning small, but by year 30, by year yeah. 40, this growth year to year is significantly higher than any small premium you're paying at that point. The dividends associated to how much equity you have allocated to that policy are usually much larger than any premium you're putting. So you're effectively thinking in long-term uh uh, time, uh, time horizons that you're going through this capitalization process initially and using it to grow and finance new things because you're also thinking that by the time we get to 65, 70, whatever age you want to put a uh, stake in the future, I don't believe in retirement, but mm-hmm. by the time that capitalization process has occurred and the exponential curve is mature, you're going to see incredible growth just by continuing to contribute to the same system and using the same example. I love it.
1: So, you just made a beautiful segue right there to my next question. So, we, I think the example we just walked through is like, here's how you use it. And here's how you use it if all things were equal in a mature policy, right? But, of course, we have to start somewhere, right? Yeah. So, you just talked about point A, which is where you have some expenses up front to deal with. But then you talk about point we'll call that point C, which is down the road where things are matured and and you're making a lot more money in dividends than you ever were paying in premiums. And that's where you're so cash positive. It doesn't matter what you do. You just keep growing. But, what about, the, the, let's draw that curve. So let's figure out where point B is. And that's kind of where, the, you know, the point where if I've put in $50,000, when do I have $50,000? Mm-hmm. Like, And I know that that kind of depends on how you structure it, yeah. but what does that look like? To, uh, what do we call that? Capitalizing the policy? Is that right? Yeah.
2: yeah. How does that work? Yeah. And this also full of nuance. Uh, just one last comment to the example before that is going to be important to this. So uh, you said at some point that, it almost the purchase of the bike is free. And I just wanna point something that is very important for um, accurate thinking. At the end, when you make a purchase, you're financing the purchase. And a differentiation i like to make for people is that people refer to price and cost as the same thing. If I'm gonna buy a bike, the bike is 3000, whether I pay cash or credit, or I use IBC, there's still a price that I need to pay. And that money is going to go to somebody else. The decision of how I finance is the critical part here, because you're still making an expense, whether it's a liability of an asset, right? But the way I finance it is in mind, keeping in mind that if I give credit or I give up the opportunity to earn credit is a cost to me and to my opportunity to grow. When I use IBC, I'm effectively redirecting that flow of interest to myself because that produces growth over the long term. So... And the question you have now is, okay, so why do we go, um, where do we have a break, a break-even point? And a lot of people ask this question because they're, they're detail-oriented, they want to focus. I would, I would normally encourage them to take a step back and look at the big picture. Overall, you're creating an ATM machine and you want to put as many ATM machines to finance all their needs for your life. We're talking about a bike, which is an expense, but imagine how this works when you buy a river, And the river is pure money and you need places to put that money. Okay. So normally the capitalization process would occur in different policies, depending on the growth of the policy and the structure of the policy between seven to 10, sometimes 12 years. Okay. And you get to accelerate this by how much you overfund the policy early. So I gave you the example of purchasing a bike by borrowing immediately from my policy. But in general, the structure of, of the process processes, you want to, overfund these policies, um, at least from our perspective, in our agency, as much as you can for the first four years. So we're gonna have, let's say, like we were talking about in that example, uh, 40 split where we put two $2,000 initially for that base premium, and then the rest is overfunding with that 3,000 for four years, okay? In the first four years, you'll see that for the first two years, the cash values only grow in relation to that 60%. But by year three and four, particularly after year four, the premiums that get paid, whether our base or the funding, are going to reflect in proportion the growth of the cash values through the next year. So if I put, um, the way we would do it is for the first four years, we put 5,000 and then a year five, we can drop, the the option to put those 3000 and we start putting 2000 moving forward, we put another a hundred or $150 as, um, as a option, a call option, let's call it, to put more money into it. If we want to continue to overfund, you don't have to necessarily, but the idea is capitalizing very early, allowing that component to grow. And then from year five on, if you put those $2,000 in premium, your policy starts growing 2000, 2100 in overall, over a long period of time, that, that premium starts to reflect that growth, okay? This process gets accelerated in, in my case, for example, my personal case for my policies and my family by continuing to overfund in excess this policy. So when I pay my forty sixty, I also have the ability to contribute an additional amount of, uh, of this capitalization process to a maximum. Guess, guess who sets that limit? A contribution? No, the government. Mm. Oh, this is huh. the mech limit, right? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. So, Aha. <laughs> so, if you wanted to buy stocks, Eric, how much stocks? How many stocks could you buy in general?
0: Just in in the free market or through some type of like a four hundred one k?
2: No, in the free market. Free
0: market. Uh, is there a limit?
2: Exactly. exactly. Or bonds, or real estate, or precious metals, or. Cryptocurrencies is interesting that for this asset class, the government in the 80s, and 88, as a matter of fact, so some behavior with uh, real estate agents that lost uh, tax shelters um, through a Reagan um, uh, tax reform that saw the opportunity to bring their capital and buy single premium, high value, single premium whole life insurance policy, one payment up front, and then that money became tax-free. And a lot of wealthy people were doing this, and they were like, whoa, 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 that's a lot of revenue that, that we're losing here. And in ADA, they implemented an act that created this MEC limit you're referring to, which is basically uh, a test, without going into details of it, that allows them to set a maximum contribution per year uh, without exceeding the benefits that the whole life insurance contracts have as insurance, you know, when they exceed that limit and they go into a limit, they still are considered insurance policies, but they lose a lot of the tax advantages and a lot of the tax treatments and there start being observed by the IRS more as investment vehicles. Therefore Absolutely. you need to pay capital gains and other things versus the treatment. We want to maintain our policies in. Okay. So, uh, If you had $100,000 and you wanted a $10,000 policy, there's ways to structure maximizing the cash inflow into the policy, but not all of it could be dumped all at once. So it's a process where you also need to water the garden and build it over time through that capitalization process. So going back again, the first four years, we're gonna try to overfund. I personally think that in uh, my approach, I'm trying to accelerate this capitalization process, so I go up to the limit that the insurance company allows me, which could be another three to $5,000 per year, let's say. And I'm going to try to bring this 10, eight years of capitalization down to seven or six, you know? But in general, it takes a time to break even. How much have I put in total outlay for how much I have in cash values? So over the last four years or so that i've been doing this i have at this point eight policies or so i'm in the middle of that process but i'm starting to get my policies that are four years old every premium that goes in the cash value over that period over that year grows in an equal or greater amount so from a year to year perspective my machine's starting to activate from an overall net net total outlet versus stuff I'm still in the capitalization process, but you know what? In the meantime, I'm acquiring assets and I'm financing my liabilities in a way that is growing the, the growing the system. And when you make contributions to overfund your policy, these contributions are buying mini policies. So not only your cash values are grown but your coverage is grown going to the initial point that we made in the conversation, which is mm. when you bank, in the way IBC proposes, you end up with more insurance coverage that you initially intended because your system continues to grow.
1: And ideally, That's you never you never use that, right? I mean, so it, and this I guess this goes to generational planning. But if you have that that massive cash value system built up, ideally you'd never want to pay out a death benefit, right? You would you would ideally hand that over and and pass it to your heirs, you know, and then they would
2: inherit the cash value and be able to kind of continue this, right? So a slight different technicality. So I think that the probability of us dying is a hundred percent. I think you're right. We don't know when, (laughs) we don't know when, so the only way to arrive, (laughs) the only achieve, the only way to achieve what you're suggesting is to get to the maturity point of the policy, which right now is 121. So if you live to 121, the company will still mail you you a check for the current Mm -hmm. death benefits. They'll Mm -hmm. take the balance of the loans that you have outstanding now, which Mm -hmm. again, Keep in mind, you control the terms of the loans. You can take 60 years to pay a loan if you want to. Okay. Yeah. yeah, But they will send you a check and then you can pass that check tax-free to your heirs. And then they can continue the process, hopefully throughout your life. You've started policies on them and they have a place where their warehouse can accommodate that death benefit. Okay. But the likelihood, the probability distribution for all of us is that we probably will not get to 121. Hopefully we get to more than 100. And at some point you will pass and that death benefit then will be transferred tax free to the beneficiaries. But because you've been building the system, Chad, since you're in your 30s, you've had the foresight to create infrastructure in the next generation and in your grandchildren for them to accommodate the certainty that that millions of dollars are coming and you're going to need a place to put it. Okay, so so kind of kind of no matter. Sorry, Eric. One more
1: question. I'll stop. (laughs) Uh, So no matter what happens when when you do when you pass away, one hundred percent chance it will happen. When it happens, is is there any way to hand the policies in their cash value state, transfer them
2: to your heirs, or is like you have to take the death benefit? At that point that goes back to understanding what the asset is the, okay. the, the whole life policy at the end is associated to the insured individual we are okay. engaging an unilateral contract meaning that only the insurance company is making a promise to the policy holder that as long as we continue to make premium payments they will replace the loss of the life of the person insured so when when you pass that promise will be fulfilled they'll distribute the death benefit but this is a multi-generational process you know all this time we've been thinking about i i can wait for my baby to arrive but we have a joke at factum it which is i wish when my baby arrived i would get a social security number and an insurance contract because i would immediately (laughs) start the compounding of my baby as soon as he's born by the time i die my wife passed 10 20 million dollars whatever it's going to be the infrastructure for them to absorb that and continue to grow their family wealth will be in yeah. place. So advanced
1: topic on that. And you'll have to, you'll have to tell us this part. So when, you get, when policies get closer to maturing, let's say you're 85 years old at this point mm-hmm. or something, right? And so I guess I'm, I'm unclear if cash value or death benefit is significantly greater, but if cash value were greater, let's say the end was coming and I was dwindling, would it be a wise thing for me to simply pull, a, take a massive loan against my policy, you know, and uh, have yeah. the ma- the maximum cash value. And then when I pass away, that there just wouldn't be anything left because I've max- maxed it out on a loan or whatever they let me do. Is that, is that another strategy to think about? I'm getting into an advance? Yeah, that's the problem with talking to smart
2: people that you think <laughs> of too many questions. Uh, I, my initial answer to this would be, becoming your own banker is a process of thinking about how to use your money and your wealth the most efficiently but from uh educational perspective i would go back to the fact that cash values are the current portion of equity that grows towards meeting that death benefit at the end of your uh, maturity of the contract so in general The growth of cash value keeps pace with the growth of the benefit, and the death benefit would always be greater than your cash values at age 85, at age 95, except age 121. So, got it, got it. Okay. The death benefit is always pacing ahead of the cash value. Uh, but what I would give you kudos for is that you're starting to break your mind and try to break the asset into ways that you could start thinking like a banker. Um, and I think that more and more of these creative ideas come as you understand the asset class much better. So,
1: Eric, I isn't Dave it's... good at this? We kind of—I forgot I was on a we're podcast good. here, and I started treating it like a personal
0: client <laughs> consultation. So, yeah. I'm going to go on mute no. now. Thanks, guys. Chad's going to go do some some number calculations now. Um, so, no, I, so I think what you were talking about was good around having a multiple policies, multiple small policies. Now, when you say that you put in, you know, four or 5k a year, you try to overfund it and you just keep, keep going. Do those, po- is there a point after year 12, let's say once it's become funded for the capitalization period that you have to keep putting money into that policy or once you pay it, you know, like the 5k, 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 it drops down to 3k. Are you paying 3k every single year in that policy or does yeah. it dwindle down to like maybe 200 bucks or something like that. Yeah.
2: Uh, It's interesting because even in your language, I can see still the distance between how you're thinking about it and how I think about it. And I'll, I'll give you an example so you can perceive this. So, uh, the, the technical answer is there's multiple ways to structure, uh, an insurance policy. You can make it paid up in 10 years. So you only pay premiums for 10 years and the policy is paid up. And from there on it's all grown internally in cash values. And it has a given death benefit. You can make it paid at 65 paid at 90 paid in seven paid, or pay in 121 years. So because I don't look at an insurance policy of this nature as an expense or something I'm paying and I don't wanna keep paying at year 12. And I don't look at it that way. I wanna make sure that my policy is structured for me to have the ability to continue to put money in this, in this warehouse as long as I'm alive. So I continue to create policies that have a stream of premiums payments opportunities through year 121. Why would I do that? The way I think about it is I know individually, personally, I know my productivity into the future. As I continue to work on myself, my growth is going to increase. I'm going to find more ways to add more value to more people and my ability to create revenue and income is going to increase year after year. Okay. Therefore, I'm going to need a system that can accommodate a bigger and a bigger pool of money that I control. So why would I cut myself at the legs and say, I only want to pay this thing for 12 years and be done in the opposite direction? I want to keep my policy as open, as flexible as I can, so I can continue to put more of my income into the system. Now that I control in an environment that is professionally managed, tax free, that allows me the ability to leverage and borrow against it, that is going to represent wealth transfer generationally. So I don't look at my premiums, although you are paying a premium, you are paying that premium to the insurance company. And that reflects a cash value. It is a payment after all. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as I'm depositing money in a system that I control and away from banks and away from systems that I don't control. So I never want to interrupt that opportunity for myself. As a matter of fact, I want to make it bigger as long as I can make it bigger. Because right now, again, I'm financing things seems silly, things that I want, you know, and, and included in that are also assets, but I know that a lot of things are going to shift into acquire more real estate into acquire more rivers. And I'm going to need a bigger lake for those rivers to come downstream and reside in a place that I control. The more flow of water that is coming in the future, the, the more I need a warehouse for it. Right. The more money that comes in, it's just like, if you think of the
0: traditional 401k standpoint, You'll run into a limit on how much you can actually, an employee can contribute into your 401k. There's a limit, you know, and then if you say, okay, if you're a business owner, now all of a sudden the rules change and and you can, there's still a limit. And so to your point, you're just expanding the amount of areas that you can go put money in to the system because you know that when you do a real estate investment deal, there's going to be additional revenue that comes in. So now all of a sudden, how do I funnel that revenue instead of just paying the income tax on it? I can put it into policies that that money will then continuously grow
2: without income tax and without capital gains tax year over year. Um, caveats to that in the way you're phrasing it, when you earn money, you still have to deal with taxes whether you have a system of IBC or not. So, if you borrow money and you make an investment and you pay, uh, and you earn a certain amount, you still have to deal with taxation because you earn income, right? On IBC that income. is not a tax. Once it, tax, it goes into, change. once it right. goes
0: into IBC, then it's then it's tax sheltered. So, uh,
2: exactly, and, and there's. There's layers of sophistication outside of this IBC. For example, if you borrow from yourself and you have an LLC that is a financing company and that money is borrowed from that company from you, you have mm-hmm. ways to this disc- you have ways to discount how much the cost of that money is, the interest you're paying on that money to yourself. Um, and then reduce your tax liability from them. so there's ways to continue to grow on sophistication that I have uh, many people in our environment see using their businesses to borrow from themselves. That way they can uh, reduce their tax liabilities. But in general, what I'm suggesting is that don't think about this as a tax shelter because that's an accurate, in an accurate representation. You're putting money in here that now is going to compound and, and grow in a, in a tax-free environment. But what you do externally still within the overall ecosystem of our financial Uh, life. And it's exposed obviously to our greatest, most fun partner, the IRS. So it it is, it is. And and that's uh, an exercise on transparency on my side, because a lot of people can be misleading to say, "Oh yeah, this tax rates, so don't worry, you won't have to pay tax again. And that's, that's not true. That's not true. So, um, and the other thing I would say is that as you continue to put capital in this, you're paying taxes on that money you earn at a literal amount, and that money is going to grow out to larger amounts in the next 40 years, and you're not gonna pay tax on it. The reverse is true for a 401k. You don't pay taxes today because you're, it's not that you don't pay taxes in a 401k, you're just deferring them into the future most times. But would you rather pay taxes on a little amount or a large amount? So something to think about.
0: So in, in cl- kind of cl- bringing this to a close, We've shared a lot of different examples and a lot of different, there's one thing that that I can pull one, one common thread throughout all this is again, it goes back to mindset and again, goes back to beliefs. You heard David share, you heard Chad share, you're starting to get into the mind of intelligent investors. So you can start to piece together the ways that they think, right? Take away the things in the in the ways that they're framing, their language that they're choosing, the examples like really listen to all that because that's the stuff that when that's the stuff that people want to sit with Warren Buffett, uh, Ray Dalio. That's the stuff that they want to pull from them. Is not where do I go put you know do I go buy Bitcoin yes or no they want to know how is it that I can think the way that you think. Because when I can start to understand the way that you think, now all of a sudden it's, you know, do you teach a man to fish or do you just throw him some fish every once in a while? This is a very much a teaching men or teaching women how to fish. So I want to I want to leave it at that because that's that's the powerful thing with this series that I hope people gain from is it's not just necessarily the tip, you know the tips tricks tactics strategies it's the the gaining of the awareness the gaining of the difference in mindsets when you know even back when I had made a comment and David had said here's how we're looking at it differently you're looking at it as an expense here's how I'm looking at it there's a difference there and that means that there's room for improvement, obviously on my part, but there's also room improvement for everybody, right? Because the way that you look at something, you're portraying what's possible for you. When you start to look at that thing, the way that you're defining it, and you can say, maybe I want to do something
2: different, or how do I move past this? There's a lot of growth that can be happening there. Yeah. One closing thought, just going back to the basics, a mindset, a process, a product. Look at your life today, whether you do IBC or you don't care, doesn't matter. What are the ideas that you're holding about money that are driving a lot of your decision making? And how is that contrast to your value? What are those decisions bringing in terms of value to your life? Number two, what are what are your processes to what Chad was saying? Is your income coming and flowing directly out of you through your expenses? Are you going into deficit by acquiring liabilities and credit and buying those through expenses over the future? Or are you behaving like the wealthy? Are you acquiring assets that then fund your expenses and your liability so you can be free, right? So what is your process today? And do you need to do something different to improve on that process? And then the products part, what products in your financial life do you currently use? How are they serving you? And think about these two things. Who is holding the risk on those products. Okay. For the reward you are perceiving. And number two, what is the control and treatment those products have that benefit the goals in the long-term view that you have for your financial life? Because I, a lot of times the answer to many of these questions I've laid out for you is, I don't know, or I don't have one. And it's very difficult to drift to a desired location. If you don't don't start with the end in mind, it's very difficult to arrive at a destination if you're just drifting, doing what everybody else around you is doing, and you don't understand how what you're doing connects with what you want. So take a look at yourself and consider that perhaps there's better options. It doesn't have to be IBC. It it was for me, it's for my family, it's for my clients. I've seen it in scales at my level. (laughs) I've seen it at scales at people, professional athletes, multiple people that make multiple million dollars a year. And they're following the same little principles I've shared with you from an individual like me. The biggest example I can tell you is that the largest national banks in the United States went through 2008 and the only place they didn't lose money was in their tier one capital associated to bank-owned life insurance policies. And after 2008, they increased significantly their allocation to Bali because the Federal Reserve allows them to use that as tier one capital. Compare their reserves to the risky assets. Imagine if that's the level of certainty the banks have on these products. H- how does that not apply as a process of products and mindset for us? People that understand money the best have a great example for us. It's up to us to understand if we want to use it or not. So, Very well said. Well, thank you guys both for,
0: for this episode. Um, a lot to chew on again. Uh, this is probably one that got pretty deep so it may take a couple times to listen to it to really soak up as much and all the the subtle details that we covered. but um, but keep moving forward. Your wealth journey is it's a lifelong process. We're in our 30s. we're all talking about where we're going to be, you know 30 years from now, 40 years from now. Just imagine we always un- underestimate what we can do in 10 years. In 10 years you can have massive growth and and go back to the last episode where we kind of had a little (laughs) a little commiserating you know reflection back to the 10 years Mm -hmm. it's amazing what can happen in 10 years so don't limit yourself infinite banking concept is all about infinity the limitless amount of possibilities that you can use it for so again this is nothing more than a tool same as 401k as a tool, same as real estate investing as a tool, same as it is fixing up tractors and cars and motorcycles as a tool. All of it is just a tool for your wealth journey. Choose which one fits for you. Throw the ones that don't away and always be open to new possibilities. So thanks guys. Till next time. Thank you guys. Did you know that eight out of 10 men are living a life that they wish was better? I believe living an exceptional life means unlearning everything that we've been taught and dropping the shoulds immediately. Which is why I created a brand new ebook titled, Coaching Secrets, How to Break Out of Ordinary and Live an Exceptional Life. I want to show you the mindsets, strategy, and tactics you need to live the life you were meant to be, so that you can step into the vision that you have for yourself, but maybe haven't taken action. And the best part about it, it's yours absolutely free. To get your copy, head on over to manofclass.com forward slash coaching secrets, and you can start living that life right now.